HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. The future of farms is the future of food. No Farms, No Future is a new podcast from American Farmland Trust and Heritage Radio Network. Hello to everyone. I'm Louisa Kasdan, your host for Let's Talk About Food, a podcast devoted to first-person storytelling where food plays a pivotal, if not a starring role. Everyone has a food story. Food is at the heart of human connection, at the center of love, of ritual, of need and want, and most of all, food creates community. And community is what we crave. Today, our guest is John Piotti, the president and CEO of American Farmland Trust. American Farmland Trust is the nation's leading nonprofit dedicated to protecting farmland, promoting sound farming practices, and keeping farmers on their land. John Piotti shares his story of how a kid growing up on Nantucket Island, hoping to design sailboats, ended up in Maine and now in Washington, laser-focused on preserving rural life and the livelihood of America's farmers. Let's have a listen. So talk to me a little bit about the story of your life. The story of my life. Wow. Okay. (laughs) Well, I've had an interesting life and one that has really brought me to the place where I am now. I grew up in an interesting community on Nantucket Island, and it really had a profound impact on me. It both connected me to nature in a very direct way and connected me to a small community in a direct way. But my home changed quite dramatically in the years when I was in college. My my mother had moved off island. My father had died, and then my stepfather had died. And uh, she had moved off island. I remember during a reflective summer between college and grad school, going back to the island and realizing I could never go back there, that I simply couldn't afford to return to that community. The island had always been a place where rich summer people came, but it was also a place that was home to middle-class folks during the full year. And yet the prices of real estate were skyrocketing. The opportunities were limited. And it dawned on me that in rural places, one of two things happen. They either become hip and trendy and overpriced, as my home had become, or they become economic ghost towns and wither on the vine. 
And so I made a very conscious decision at that point in time that the focus of my life was going to be on rural community development. I wanted to help rural places grow in a way where local people would still have the opportunities to live and work there, ideally, though, without spoiling the place. I have family roots in Maine, and so as soon as I was finished with graduate school, my recent wife and I moved to Maine. Susan came from southwestern Vermont, where a very similar thing was happening as on Nantucket during that period of time in the early 1980s, maybe not with as quite as many zeros at the end of the escalations of real estate prices as in Nantucket, but the same thing. So we both moved to Maine. She had just graduated and became a physician assistant, wanted to work in rural medicine. And I had this dream of trying to help rural places grow. And we moved to a very small community and I got engaged in the community because that's what I do. And I found myself co-chairing the local comprehensive planning committee with a dairy farmer. And this is where it all began. And and yeah. didn't you begin as like a... Um a nautical engineer or something like that? Yes. I, I went to MIT. I couldn't really decide what I wanted to do when I grew up. So I ended up getting an engineering degree and I got a political science, a public policy degree, and then I got a master's in management. But my engineering degree was in ocean engineering and I'm an avid sailor and I was going to be a naval architect when I went to college. Didn't quite happen. This was very much a change of course for me, but something I was quite passionate about. And I ended up in this small town, town of Unity, Maine. It sounds very, very quaint. It is in some ways. It's also very real in others. But in Unity, Maine, I ended up co-chairing this local committee with a dairy farmer. And he challenged me in a way that I think farmers are sometimes quite good at. He said, John, you say you care about rural economic development, and yet you know nothing about farming. And he was right. And in Harsh a, words. Yes. Harsh words. <laughs> in a rare moment of humility, I agreed. And he became a mentor of mine. And it's very true. I sort of subscribed the way most people in New England did 30 plus years ago to this notion that farms were the past, right? Our farming, when people discovered Iowa and real soils, they left New England and went west and that there was really no farming here. And I was fortunate that I had grown up in a family that really cared deeply about food. And we actually always had a very large garden and we put up vegetables. I had some connections there, but farming as a commercial enterprise, farming as an economic driver, I thought that was long past for New England. And what this gentleman, Dick Perkins, did for me is made me realize that if I was serious about sustainable rural development, I had to think about business opportunities that were literally rooted in the ground, like farming. You know, at this point in time, all the talk in Maine was about call centers. That was our economic plan at that point in time. We we're going to have all these call centers because we were low-cost employees. Well, the problem with the call centers, you can you can move it from Maine to Indonesia next next year. Agriculture is literally rooted and people need to eat. So that was the beginning of what has now been 30 plus years working with farming. And I went from thinking that farming didn't have a future to thinking that if we were serious about rural community development, if we were serious about sustainable development, sustainable agriculture had to be at its heart. Wow. So how did you put that into action? 
Well, at the time, I was working for a statewide community development corporation, the largest in Maine, big by Maine standards, about 100 employees. And I was writing grants and doing some odds and ends. Usually we're sort of technology and small business development came together. I was doing what I wanted to do, which is trying to figure out appropriate ways to help rural communities grow. I was working with the wood products industry a little bit with some aquaculture and things of that sort. I went to my boss and I said, I want to focus on agriculture. And he said, you're crazy. (laughs) And I said, I'll raise all the money. I'll do it. I want to create my own organization, but for a couple of years, I need your organization to be the parent so I can worry about the work and not worry about bylaws and board building and all that kind of stuff. And he said, well, if you raise the money, sure. And three years later, we were probably close to 10% of that organization's budget. I had something like seven staff. We both began it as the local food movement in New England was beginning. And of course, New England, Vermont, Maine, Western Mass were really the leaders of this, the first CSAs. Some of this was an outgrowth of the back to the land movement and people who had stayed. We sort of picked up on that, but we also contributed to it, right? The work that we did was a big part of advancing local food. I'll give you one example of it. I had on staff for several years, a graphic artist who did nothing except develop logos for farms who were trying to market direct because farms didn't know how to do that. They had no marketing savvy whatsoever. And this woman, Gabe McPhail, so talented, she probably did logos for about 200 farms in Maine. And every single one of them thought they were getting the best personalized service possible. And they were all unique. It was quite amazing. But in essence, we and others helped build the local food movement in Maine. Then within a few years, several of us realized that having farms be economically viable and vibrant, again, was important. But if we didn't have the land available, it was all short-sighted. It wasn't going to last and land prices were going up. So a number of us saw a report from this organization called American Farmland Trust that showed the land loss that was occurring because of development pressure. And Maine didn't look too good on that map. We went to them and said, what can we do? And they gave us support. And we founded this organization called Maine Farmland Trust, completely separate, but working on the same issues, trying to protect farmland with agricultural conservation easements, which does two things simultaneously. First, it makes sure that land will always be available for farming. But second, it makes the land more affordable for either new farmers or existing farmers who want to expand because you can't develop the land. Protecting farmland not only ensures that the land is there, but makes the land more affordable for incoming farmers. So I went from helping farmers write business plans and develop new markets to making sure that the land would be available for those farmers. And that sort of quickly moved into helping new farmers get started. I'm very proud of the work we did in Maine. We helped hundreds of people get into this profession. There were one point uh, just before I I left Maine Farmland Trust and the federal statistics showed that 
We were the state that had the largest percentage of new farmers. We really helped uh, propel the local food movement and all of that's meant for our economy and for the environment. I remember when I first met you and you were at Maine Farmland Trust, I think you'd already been in the state legislature by then. Mm -hmm. Yeah. My aha moment, because I'm from neighboring Massachusetts. Massachusetts is a wonderful state and we generally are invested in being the first and best at everything. And I'm like, why is this local food movement such a big deal in Maine? And you said to me, because we're the end of the line. Mm. Because if there's any disruption along the line, food coming from California, food coming from wherever, it's not get to Maine. So if we want fresh food and we want to be able to have a supply we can depend on, we got to do it ourselves. Nope, you're absolutely right. And I think Mainers have always had a streak of self-sufficiency and part of it is because it's needed. And that was certainly one of the drivers. But I think there's another driver too. And that is in places like Maine and Vermont where the local food movement really had its early days and even Western Massachusetts and the Berkshires, they are places that still resonate with what I would call true community. You recognize the connection. You know that if you're not shopping at the local hardware store and a few of your neighbors don't shop there, they're going to go out of business. You see those kind of economic dynamics. You know that you are part of the economy. You rely on each other. I remember when we made a conscious decision 25 years ago, Susan and me, that we were going to buy only local meat. At that point, it was about three times more expensive than what you could buy in the grocery store. Well, our solution there was we'll buy only local meat, but maybe we'll buy one third less. And so it won't really hurt our budget as much. And maybe it's better for us as well. But the point I want to make is it's hard for people to take steps that could have an economic bite like that. But if they realize that if they don't do it and others around them don't do it and support local businesses, that they're going to be constrained with whatever business they're in as well. So I think part of it is the self-sufficiency and the fact that Maine is at the end of the line. I also think part of it is a sense of community and seeing that we're all in this together. Connectedness. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, you were a phenomenal success at Maine Farmland Trust and you were happy there. Mm -hmm. How did you, um, (laughs) and I remember, (laughs) gosh, Shoemaker. This great great organization that I had built, a staff that I had built. We went from two employees to 45 employees. I'd brought on everyone myself and and they were wonderful people and they, they worked the way I wanted them to. I had been the state legislature, I had chaired the Ag Committee, and then I had become a majority leader. So it's a small state, you can get things done, and I knew everybody. So why'd I leave all of this? Well, I was recruited by American Farmland Trust, an organization that I had long admired, that was actually going through some challenging times right then and needed new leadership. And I actually said no. They recruited me hard, and in the end, I said no. And they came back to me. And... The chair of the board knew what buttons to push. And he said, John, you've done incredible work in Maine. And it's been focusing on really important stuff. But at American Farmland Trust, you will have a bigger stage and you will have an opportunity to also work on an area that Maine Farmland Trust really isn't positioned to work on. And that is the connection between farming and climate. 
American Farmland Trust had been a leader in that area. They'd been working on soil health issues for 35 years at that point in time. I'd started at Maine Farmland Trust to write about this link between farming and climate and how farming done right could be part of the solution. I had a soapbox to talk about it. We had a little journal, as you know, but I wasn't really in a position to do programming to advance that. That was just beyond our financial resources and really beyond our mission at Maine Farmland Trust. So AFT was an organization that was front and center in that space. And the chair of the board said, John, this is your chance to have an impact on the issue of our day that you care deeply about. And if you don't take this job, you're going to regret it forever. He sold me. I remember when the dear departed Gus Schumacher called me up and he said, mm. guess what? I have great news. The best news. <laughs> John Piotti is going to American Farmland Trust. <laughs> oh, boy. I miss Gus. What a wonderful, wonderful man. And wonderful. Uh, um, he did so much for agriculture and food security issues. And and I have a Gus story. I don't know if you want to get on this path or not. But, you know, I, I thought I had a really amazing relationship with Gus. He was always sending me emails. And when I moved to Washington, he'd grab me and take me to some of the farmer's markets around the town and, and stuff like that. And I thought he was my mentor. And then I went to one of the memorial services when he sadly passed and realized there were about 600 other people there who <laughs> felt exactly like I did. He had an amazing ability to connect with people more than anyone I know. And he made everyone feel like that relationship was special because I honestly think for him, every one of those relationships was special. Joyous, a totally joyous person. Indeed. Just, yeah. And one of the things that he did was to launch Wholesome Wave with Paul Newman. Yes. Which really yes. brought the food and the people part of it together and Indeed. create this system whereby people who were on government assistance could go to farmers markets and their single dollar would be worth twice if they yep. were buying fruits and vegetables. What a guy. What a and loss. that program, Congress actually renamed that program after Gus. So so let's talk about how Mr. Piotti went to Washington. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a long way from Maine. So, so let's talk about how Mr. Piotti went to Washington. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a long way from Maine. It is a long way from Maine. And to be honest, it was a tough first year. The organization was struggling a little bit. AFT was really the pioneer in this space. It was the first organization to try to bring the environment and agriculture together, really viewing them both as two sides of the same coin. And it's hard to remember how different the world was in the 1970s, but farmers and environmentalists were really at odds. And one of them really thought of the other as being the bad guy. And in fact, you know, the story, the origin of AFT is kind of interesting. Peggy Rockefeller, who was our principal founder. She pulled together a brain trust of amazing folks, but she was the driver. And Peggy served at the time in the 1970s on the board of the Nature Conservancy, TNC. And TNC today does amazing work, great work with farmers. But at that point in time, it did nothing. And, and Peggy teed up to the board this notion that TNC needed to get into that space. It was so important. 
farmers and environmentalists who had loggerheads and someone needed to recognize that these two issues, as I said, are really two sides of the same coin. And she suggested to the board of TNC that they take on working with farmers. And the board said, no, said, we can't do that. I don't know how anyone says no to Peggy Rockefeller, but the board did. So it was then teed up with some other environmental organizations, and they all said no for the same reason. These groups were defining themselves by the fact that the farmers were the enemy, were the polluters. Then the idea was pitched to some farm groups, and they said, what? Get in bed with those tree huggers? Absolutely not. So the only solution was to create a new organization. So we were the first group in America that really brought these issues together. And the legacy today is that now the Nature Conservancy, uh, EDF, other environmental groups see farmers as part of the solution. And likewise, the corn growers and standard traditional farm groups see conservation as critical. So anyway, AFT had a really outsized role in advancing both farmland protection and better farming practices in the 80s and 90s and early 2000s. But it did hit some hard times. And those began probably in about 2008, 2009. Our longtime president left after 20, 25 years. And it's always hard to fill the shoes of a charismatic leader. And the recession hit. And then the other issue was that there was this bill in Congress in 2009 called Waxman-Markey. It was the first bill to really pull together agriculture and climate. And it passed in the House and it failed in the Senate. And AFT had put a lot of its effort into that bill. And just as importantly, a lot of our funding as an organization was coming from foundations and groups who really wanted to advance that issue. When it died, those funders said, we're not getting traction on ag and climate here in the United States. We're gonna take our marbles and go elsewhere. We're gonna focus where we think we can get a real impact. Like for instance, looking at palm oil plantations or deforestation in Brazil. So AFT had some of this perfect storm of challenges that all came. Six, seven years later, when I was recruited, we were still in that morass, right? So it was a challenging time for me. It was also 2016. So going to Washington in time for Donald Trump to be elected president put an extra challenge on the situation. But the organization was full of some really great people, some folks who really were the national leaders in their field. We still, even though we had been on a bit of a downward spiral for the previous few years, we still had an incredible reputation of being this bridge builder in the middle who brought real science and real facts for common ground solutions. And so although the first couple of years were tough, all the pieces were there to rebuild. And we've come back strong. And and of course, today, the issues that we care about most particularly what we refer to as conservation agriculture and how farming done right can really be a force for good in the environment. Those issues are getting greater play than ever before. So it's a little bit of frustration for a few years, but it really feels like we're on a good track. And that board chair who told me if I didn't take the job, I'd regret it. He's he's proven to be right. I feel like this is where I was fated to be. And what's the future, John? 
Well, a lot of uncertainties in how agriculture is going to unfold. It's an interesting business because you can't change things on a dime. You really have to plant your crop and you can make some adjustments this year, but you don't really know if those adjustments are the right ones for four months, six months, a year later. So there's a lot that has to happen in agriculture if it is going to heal our planet and feed our planet in the future. I'm optimistic. I'm optimistic by nature, but we have a lot of challenges and not a lot of time. I think there is this increased appreciation that farming is about more than growing our food. It is also about providing a whole range of environmental services, be that water recharge and wildlife habitat. But increasingly, of course, people were thinking of the power of the soil to sequester carbon. So important. Um, one of the few hopeful ways that we can challenge and counter climate change. But Although there's a lot of hope and possibilities out there, there are so many uncertainties. Public policy has a huge role to play here. AFT does an awful lot with federal agricultural policy. There's some good signs out there on the horizon. The Biden administration and Secretary Vilsack, I think, are moving absolutely in the right direction. There's more interest amongst the public in these issues than ever before, and that's critically important. But we still don't know where it's all headed. And the biggest challenge for an organization like AFT is, you know, we're small. We have 150 staff and it's a big country and agriculture is a big industry. And we every day wonder we're pursuing dozens of different projects all the time. And we're always wondering if we're always on the right track with each one? Are we missing some key opportunity because we've chosen something else? And with a relatively small organization, you never know. But we do feel we have a critical role to play. We've been at this longer than anyone. We've got a lot of experience. We don't want to think of this climate and ag stuff as just the fashion of the day. I'm a little fearful that folks who are excited about it now are going to move away from it when we run into some hurdles and challenges, which we, we will. AFT has that staying power. We've been at this game for 40 years and we recognize you have to play the long game and, and think about policy changes, both federally and at the state level, changing the minds of farmers and others. It's a long process. As someone said to us recently, nature tells you that Nothing is ever hurried, but everything gets done. Mm, that's great. I love that. Um, John, thank you so much. This is a great conversation. Thank and you, Lisa. We look fun. forward to more from American Farmland Trust and more from John Piotti. Thank you so much. <laughs> thank you. Want to know more about AFT? Visit their website, farmland.org. And a very exciting bit of news, American Farmland Trust has a brand new podcast on Heritage Radio Network, No Farms, No Future. You'll love it. It's available wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Let's Talk About Food is produced by The Food Voice. I'm producing, along with audio director and composer Mike Moss of Soundscape Boston. You can find more of our stories at our website, letstalkaboutfood.com, and on Heritage Radio or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Let's Talk About Food is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradio.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. 